Now, let's talk sports with Kanoa Leahy on ESPN Honolulu. Hey, happy Aloha Friday, everybody. Uh, Dave Kawada filling in for Kanoa Leahy, and he just heard if you tuned in to the Sports Center, the big news, hot, uh, I don't know how hot it is in today's media world, but former University of Washington head coach Kalen DeBoer will be the next Alabama head coach, replacing the retired Nick Saban. So that's going to be the big buzz today and through the weekend. Kalen DeBoer obviously taking University of Washington to the national championship game we just saw on Monday. So there is... Um, you know, lots of spec. <coughs> excuse me, speculation that was buzzing around, and I it coincides with the fact that I kind of want to open with this: with the three coaches that stepped away on for various reasons within a 24-hour period. Nick Saban retiring, Bill Belichick, and Pete Carroll separating from their NFL teams. You know, I looked at the some of the parallels, right? All three of them are 71 or 72 years old. And, you know, Nick Saban in an interview said, you know, age affected him. He felt that it was just harder for him to do the things he needed to do at his age. And he mentioned that this past season was more of a grind for him. Uh, reading between the lines as well is that you know, I believe he was he was open to the fact that he did not like how college sports, college football, obviously in particular, was developing with transfer portals. And now you can transfer twice as an undergraduate and the whole NIL thing. And so he would never say that. Well, I, I, he would. He's retired now. He can say whatever the heck he wants. But he didn't say that in that interview. But he did, you know, express things to do at his age, at 72 years old. Yeah, you know. You, a lot of people are retired by then. Uh, but I looked at all three of them, and I thought, you know, they're all the same age. They're in different levels of football. Two of them in Saban and Belichick are would be arguably considered the best, best in the NFL, best coach in college football. And the third, Pete Carroll, is one of the very few that has won championships in both levels, the NFL, a Super Bowl, and college football and national championships. So I think about, you know, these decisions of replacing or moving or leaving a job, replacing a top executive type person, you know, it comes to a couple of things. It's hard to compare entertainment and sports in the real world because they're not really. But if you try to, you know, one of the things is in the real world, if the relationship between the coach and the executives that have to work with the coach, and if in the NFL it's the owner and the GM, and college is the athletic director, if no matter what your history may be, if there's a point where that relationship either has been tense even before, but you are winning and winning and winning, and then it suddenly changes, or put it this way, it's been tense, but hey, you're winning. And then, oh, you've lost a past couple of years in the case of Bill Belichick, um, Pete Carroll. Not that he's lost a lot, but, you know, it went down a little bit. They're not as productive and as good as they used to be. Here's the window of opportunity for that top executive to say, you know what, we want to go into a different direction. Uh, if you're winning, 
it's hard for the athletic director or an owner to, to say, you know, we want to go in a different direction. They'd be crucified. In Nick Saban's case, he just wanted to retire. Now, I don't know what the relationship between he and the athletic director, but I would say, and, it, you know, it's pretty seen, you know, in, especially in college level, that the head football coach, if you're really successful, I mean, you carry a lot of influence and you can push your weight around and you can get things done the way you want to. College football, you know, that is, you're the king. Unless you're at a school where maybe college basketball is the dominant sport, such as Duke or, you know, Georgetown. If you're the winning college basketball coach, that guy is the main guy. And it's tough if you're the athletic director who, that's why I say it's not, it's not realistic to the real world because your boss is getting paid hundreds or even millions less than you are. You know, the head coach is getting paid millions and the athletic director is not that close in that pay spectrum, but yet you're the boss and then the coach can, you know, has more influence and more leverage and can actually walk into the president of the university's office and get things done over going over the AD's head. So all those things, you know, have transpired, continue, but you're for the AD and that coach is a winner. Hey, what, what can you do? You got to just suck it up. But if you start to lose or start to dip, and there's a, com- a couple of years of dipping where standards are not as high, um, there's some crowd out there that's saying, hey, maybe it's time for a change. There's your window of opportunity. Um, so that can factor in, obviously. The trends in coaching, you know, on both levels, college and NFL, head coaches, the trend has been to go young, has been to get that younger and not only younger, but offensive-minded coach if you're going to make that move. So youth, you know, Sean McVay kind of started it, and you go, you look around, you look even in college, you know, there's a lot of younger coaches getting their head coaching gigs at, in their later, mid to late 30s, early 40s, and then, you know, if, they're, if they've won previous to that, they're getting a shot. So the youth movement, the offensive movement, you know, all three of these guys, Saban, Belichick, Carroll, are defensive guys. So when, you know, not that I'm some big business tycoon, but the owners are business people. They made their millions in the area of whatever industry or business that they're in. They weren't coaches. They weren't um, GMs of professional teams. Normally, they are business guys. And they will look at industry trends, right? You look at what sells. What in the industry do I need to pivot on or to keep my company relevant? And they always want to be ahead of the game to make sure the stock prices are increasing and that they are keeping up with competition. So in sports, if they look at some of these trends, you know, they want to move in those directions uh, and be, be, you know, be relevant again, be competitive again, you know, make their stock go up, make the value of their team go up. Uh, you know, so I can see where some of that trends and the fact that in the Pelichek and Carroll case, they kind of slipped in their standards of excellence and the window of opportunity comes and their owners are able to now say, look, we have an opportunity to move in a different direction. And the bottom line, other, other, you know, I, I'm reading some of the articles with uh, Pete Carroll as well, is that there just is a, could be a difference of opinion. You know, there just could be a difference of opinion on how to make it, things get better. So because 
you know, a Belichick has been there for 20-something years and has won. He has his way. He has his philosophy. Because Carroll has won in the, a national championship, two national championships in college and won a Super Bowl and has been successful, he has his way on how he wants to improve their record for next year, how he wants to adjust the personnel. And if you just have a difference of opinion between the owner and the GM, combined with industry trends, combined with a window of public opportunity to make a change, then suddenly that coach doesn't have as much leverage as they used to. And in these, these cases, it just happened, all three of them, within 24 hours. Age, the trend. In Nick Saban's case, he came to a realization that, A, you need to be younger. And, and does coaching need to be younger now? Like in this era of, especially in college athletics, where there's, you kids can transfer multiple times. They don't like a little bit, they're out of there. If they don't have the NIL, they're out of there. So there's so much more opportunity for movement among student athletes, kids between the ages of 18 and 22 years old. You know, they don't even like, oh, we, I mean, I'm, I'm maybe making this up. We, don't, we run too much. We run too much. I don't like this. I'm going to enter the transfer portal. I mean, it can be as simplistic as that, that, you know, is it becoming more of a younger coach's game to be able to relate or understand or communicate or develop relationships, not only on the recruiting trail, but to constantly re-recruit your roster every year. Re-recruit your top two scores every year, top three scores every year, your top quarterback every year, and put a pitch on there that, hey, what are you hearing? Here's Oh, if you're telling me that, here's what we can do to counter that. Every year. And there could be a 72-year-old Nick Saban saying, I've had enough of that, and I will be on my way. Credit to him. You know, he, he's been successful. But, you know, it, it is more, it is younger. You know, it takes more energy. It takes more devotion. Coaches are such, you know, focused guys that, you know, they, they, they sleep only four hours and they're constantly working, you know, 15-hour days, never see their families, never see their wives as it is. But then I think it's just become so much more, you have to be so much more strategic, so much more relationship-based with your players, so much more of the recruiting, re-recruiting, and engaging with your boosters more than before. You're now engaging with boosters for fundraising for the, your team or your athletic department. You're getting calls and texts and FaceTime needed with guys now on the NIL side. Like, hey, hey, let's get that... Let's, there's this recruit out in such and such place, and you know I heard that the NIL he's being offered is here, here, here. Here's what I can do. Let's work on something for this kid, and let's work on something for that kid. So, way more stretched out into different areas now as a college coach, anyway. So, whew, that's going to be tough. Hey, we're going to have a good show for you today. No three major coaches going to leave this show within 24 hours. We are going to break it up a bit. We're going to have Dallas Correa who was, well, there's a, there's a coaching change for you. He was uh, assistant coach with the University of Hawaii baseball team and then just became the catching coordinator, I hope I'm saying it right, the catcher's coordinator with the Milwaukee Brewers. So he had been an, a volunteer last year, 
became a full-fledged assistant coach this at the beginning of this academic year and before the season even started, is now going to be working with the Milwaukee Brewers. So Dallas Correa, going to come on the show. We're going to congratulate him and talk about his new venture there. Also at the bottom of the R, University of Men's Basketball falling to UC Irvine. And we're going to have a chat with uh, from Warriors insider Wes Nakama. We talk about University of Men's Basketball, and you know he's been a reporter in the media for sports coverage locally for years. I'm going to get his little take on, you know, Kalen DeBoer now coming as the new Alabama coach is coaching. Do you need to be younger now? Do you need to be in your 30s to be able to handle 10 years as a coach versus being 40s or 50s to handle 10 years? We'll ask him about that. So let's take our first break. When we come back, Dallas Correa, we'll talk with him, some baseball, new catchers coordinator with Milwaukee. This is Let's Talk Sports. Dave Kawada filling in for Kanoa Lei on ESPN Honolulu. Upgrade your island style with Kahala, the original Loa shirt since 1936. Pick one up for yourself at one of Kahala's six stores island-wide or at kahala.com. Our next guest has upgraded, well, depends on how you look at it, but definitely altered and changed his career within a 12-month period uh, from a volunteer University of Hawaii baseball coach to a full-time University of Hawaii baseball assistant coach, and now to the, hope I get this right, the catching coordinator for the Milwaukee Brewers. It's Dallas Correa joining us now. Dallas, thanks for coming on. Hey, Dave. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Did I get the your new title correct, catching coordinator? Yes, so it's the catching coordinator uh, with the Milwaukee Brewers. So really excited for the opportunity. And, you know, my goodness, I mean, uh, and really within a 12-month period, you went f- from about three different career paths to this current one. So when Rich Hill became the head coach at the University of Hawaii, you got onto his staff as a volunteer, correct? Because you still had a day job of being a teacher. That's correct. Yeah, I was the director of player development, uh, which is a volunteer role for the University of Hawaii, and I'm so thankful for that and all the opportunities that that enabled me to do under Coach Hill. Um, so, uh, you know, just, just so thankful and so much gratitude for the University of Hawaii because of that. And prior to that, you had been the head coach of baseball at HPU while still teaching during the day. So you kind of continued that role, although your baseball part became voluntary. And then just the start of this academic year, you changed significantly to become a full-time assistant coach with the UH baseball program, right? That's correct. Yeah, it, it gave me the opportunity to be on field, um, to, to actually be able to instruct uh, and, and make a little bit more of an impact on the recruiting side as well. So um, it, it was an awesome experience to be able to get into that role. So then what happened? How did the Milwaukee Brewers suddenly come into the picture? It, it really popped up out of nowhere. Uh, a, a simple text uh, to set up a phone call. Uh, with the vice president of player development, uh, turned into submitting a written portion to an interview process to kind of where we are right now. Um, so it, it all popped up out of nowhere and, and uh, you know, just a, kind of a whirlwind of events, you know, in the last month or so for, for my family and I, but uh, very thankful for it. 
no kidding whirlwind. I mean, the the sad part is that actually, I remember when you got became the f- uh, full-time assistant coach this academic year, obviously we're looking forward to the upcoming season, but before the season even started, you're now in this new capacity. What is kind of the, the role of the catching coordinator? Yeah, uh, the catching coordinator basically will oversee all of the curriculum, the development, the instruction of all the catchers throughout the minor league system. So all the way up from AAA, all the way down to rookie ball. Uh, And we'll be able to uh, interact with the big league club uh, in a lot of different ways uh, and just make sure that everybody's on the same page. So uh, our our entire goal uh, is to just move the needle of development with these catchers as much as we can. and, And we just really look forward to doing that. So does that mean you have to move or to the mainland or be based out of someplace in the mainland? Or is it more you could still live here but then travel to different where the different teams are kind of thing? Yeah, I think it's going to be a mixture. Uh, I'm very fortunate that the Brewers are allowing uh, my wife and I and my family some time to kind of make this decision. Uh, their home base is in Phoenix, Arizona. That's where uh, spring training is for the Brewers. Um, and that's where a lot of the development will happen. Uh, but we do have some time, you know, to make that decision. And, and right now they're uh, graciously allowing me to, to do it from Honolulu. So uh, very thankful for that. Dallas Correa joining us, the new catching coordinator for the Milwaukee Brewers, who just was the assistant coach with the University of Hawaii baseball team. And, you know, uh, you're, you're from Kauai, you went to St. Louis, and, you know, you were the head coach as well as HPU. So you have a lot of, obviously, baseball roots in yourself. So I want to ask, you know, baseball baseball guys this. As someone who was a catcher, who coaches catchers, and I'll be coordinating professional catchers, what is the physical, kind of the ideal physical catcher in today's game? Before, and, and maybe it still is, but I always kind of envisioned that catcher to be kind of that you know, solidly built six foot to six two guy, you know, maybe 200 to 215 pounds, you know, sturdy to be able to block the plate coming in, uh, you know, obviously with an arm that can throw, make that throw to second base. Is that still about right or have things kind of changed in terms of just the physical elements of the ideal catcher? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, I, I think a lot of the changes uh, in the catching position have been more catered towards somebody that can be very athletic behind the plate. So a lot of people call the catcher now the shortstop behind the dish. Mm. Uh, so to be able to have that type of athleticism, that type of footwork, uh, be able to throw from different arm angles, uh, be able to manipulate the ball when it comes to receiving, throwing, blocking, um, I, I think it, it, it's really moving towards this athletic build type of guy um, as opposed to maybe in the past being you know that very large physical uh, guy that we, we would kind of just stick behind there you know now it's, it's really athletic uh, in a position that is uh, very valuable to an organization. Obviously, you know, my thought of a catcher, too, is that it, their main priority is defense, yeah, the defensive skills, all the things you just mentioned, and being able to work with catchers and be able to, you know, the, that tandem, the battery, being able to really work together to strategize on getting batters out. Offensively, though, I always thought, you know, 
However a catcher did offensive, we don't care, as long as they can really be a defensive gem. But is there more emphasis on having, as you mentioned, now an athletic catcher, but also a more offensively producing catcher too? Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, I think the bat is always the separator when it comes to a catcher and his ability to advance, uh, not only in high school and college, but also, of course, throughout professional baseball, that bat is going to be the separator. Um, but what a lot of teams now and organizations are finding is that there's so much value in somebody who can frame, who can save runs through framing, who can block, who have who has that kind of defensive tone to them. Uh, so I, I think there it's, it's a... You need both, you know. You get, you got to have a good bat, and you got to be able to play defensively uh, in order to really make a difference. So, in the in the essence, like so, if you look at the way National and American League, where the American League has a DH, um, let's say if you're a catcher that's really good behind the plate defensively, but your bat is weak, could is it safe to say then that you have greater opportunity in the American League because there is a DH that can at least cover up another offensive spot on the lineup versus the National League where you know the pitcher still has to bat, so you're already going to have a you know a crap. I don't want to say that, but yeah, a crappy batter batting in the ninth hole. You don't want to have two crappy batters, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it really depends on the organization's view of how much they value that position. You know, are they going to value somebody that's going to be more defensive, or, or do they also believe? that their organization can develop somebody who has a bat and who maybe isn't as defensive. Uh, so it, it all depends, you know, and I, and I know that's probably not the best answer, but um, <laughs> it just depends on what they're looking for, you know, and what they truly value. Dallas Correa joining us, new catching coordinator with the Milwaukee Brewers, former assistant coach with the University of Hawaii baseball team. Do you, are you going to be engaged in, like, scouting talent as well? I, I think it's going to be more so on the player development side. Uh, I, I know maybe those questions may pop up, uh, but I'm really head down on focusing in on just our guys um, and making sure that we really move the needle uh, in the catching space for the Brewers. So what's the next step for you right now? I mean, uh, is it targeting spring training and heading up to Phoenix? Yeah, right now I'm, I'm definitely planning uh, a lot for spring training, which will happen around February 14th. Uh, I, I leave on Sunday to go up there for a week for catcher's camp, uh, which will be a lot of fun, a lot of, a lot of good opportunities to meet the guys, to start building relationships with not only the players but the coaches, uh, and just get myself in front of a lot of different people, uh, which I think is important uh, when you're new. Um, but, yeah, a lot of planning right now and, and just, excitement uh to get out there and kind of get going wow well congratulations to you on this great new role a new career path into major league ba professional baseball major league baseball good luck to you in your next endeavor i'm glad you're still around so we'll still be able to see you around and stuff but congratulations yeah thank you so much i really appreciate you thanks for coming on dallas correa new catching coordinator for the Milwaukee Brewers, that that is so awesome, and that talk about now talk about he's a young guy that has made some significant movement within about three years, right? Four years from teaching during the day, became the head coach at HPU, then a volunteer at UH, but still teaching during the day, then this this year. 
leaving teaching, full-time college assistant coach, and suddenly, boom, coaching coordinator, and now involved with major leagues. That is, talk about ascension. And who knows? I think there will be more elevations for him in his baseball career to come. So we want to congratulate Dallas Correa. All right, we'll take another time out. When we come back, we're going to shift now. We're going to talk a little University of Hawaii men's basketball. They took a in the chin uh, last night. But the good thing about college basketball, when you get into conference season, you have another game tomorrow on Saturday. And we have a pair of men's basketball tickets for tomorrow's game against UC Riverside. So if you want a chance to win, be caller number Four, caller number four, 296-808-296-1420, 808-296-1420 for a pair of men's basketball tickets for tomorrow's game against UC Riverside. We'll take a timeout, call in, try and win those tickets. We'll have Wes Nakama coming up right on the bend. This is Let's Talk Sports on ESPN Honolulu. Hey, mahalo to Domino's Hawaii for their sponsorship of Let's Talk Sports. Domino's Hawaii has made it a priority to help our community by making it more affordable to feed our families. Order online or via the Domino's app and save up to 20% off on your order or choose from a host of other deals available. Domino's Pizza Hawaii, we deliver aloha. We're going to shift gears from baseball and talk some basketball because we are actually in deep with the basketball men's team taking it on the chin last night, losing to Irvine by 10, 50 to 60. So we'll talk with Mr. Basketball himself. A more insider, former uh, sports writer with the Honolulu Advertiser, Wes Nakama, joining us. Hey, Wes. How's it going, Dave? Going very good. Now, I'm going to dig into your encyclopedia and your your brain of sp- local sports that I know is just, I always say, is the greatest memory ever created in sports history here in the state of Hawaii. But, you know, uh, taking a taking a loss here, and that's a, obviously naturally deflating uh, just in the natural sense of losing a game. But you know what kind of pointed out to me was when seeing Noel Coleman with no points. So, you know, and that's another game where he's been kind of just shut down uh, pretty handily. Your, your kind of thoughts about Coleman's performance. Yeah, exactly. Um you know, this would happen. Uh, we saw it in the exhibition opener against St. Mary's. I think uh, he, he was 0 for 4. Uh, just the fact that he only had four looks at the basket, a shooter of his caliber, um, is concerning. Uh, last night, uh, similar. He only got six attempts. A couple of those were, were, were drives. So when you're talking about open uh, three-point shots or perimeter shots, uh, he didn't get very many um, and, and was not able to hit uh, the ones that he did get. So... Definitely a concern, as, as Coach Gannat pointed out. Uh, he did contribute uh, in other ways, defensively and, 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 and whatnot. But uh, when you got a scorer like him, a shooter like him, who's averaging, you know, usually of 12, 13, 14 points a game, and then he puts up uh, a goose egg, that's definitely cause for concern. Yeah, and it's happened before. So this is not the only game. It's one thing, you know, one game is an anomaly. You had a terrible shooting night or what have you. But, you know, there's the attempts – like you said, only six attempts. So if he's your two-guard, off-guard, only six attempts, that's one thing. You're 0 for, eh, that's another thing. As a team, three-point shooting, not very well in a three-point shooting in an area of college basketball where that's going to, you know, you got to have gunners. So the concerning part is if you're an, any of the opposing teams in the Big West and you look at these scouting points and you know that 
one of you, one of the starters and a key scorer for Hawaii can be shut down. I can't imagine that there is not another coach that's going to key on that and shut him down again. And knowing that he's susceptible to be shut down totally, uh, that part is like, whoa, like do we have to make some adjustments or something like that in the lineup? Yeah, uh, well, I don't know if it's necessarily in the lineup, but what I, what I would like to see, um, because a lot of, and, you know, UH got 17 three-point attempts overall, which is which is not bad. We did have some open looks. Uh, but some of those open looks, to be honest, um, look like, you know, the guys were rushing their shots. I mean, Juan Munoz had an air ball. You don't see that uh, very often. Um, Justin McCoy, a couple of his shots fell way short, um, barely touching the rim. Uh, so that indicates to me that, that you know, they're, they're, even the open looks that they did get, they weren't totally comfortable, not totally square, uh, maybe a little rush uh, in their in their release. Um, so, you know, I, I would like to see a little more, um, especially for Coleman, talking about him, uh, maybe run a quick hitter, you know, a double screen to get him a really clean open look where he has time to actually square up and, and really um, – relax and let the ball fly the way he normally does um, instead of just relying on, um, you know, that quick extra pass after, after trying to move the ball and get openings that way. Joined by Wes Nakama from Warrior Insider covering University of Hawaii men's basketball. I mentioned the good thing about, you know, in season, if you kind of take it a, a loss in the Thursday game, you got a quick turnaround. You can redeem yourself uh, tomorrow uh, against UC Riverside. So that's kind of a positive. I wanted to dig a little into your uh, memory banks here. What team, what two teams, University of Hawaii men's basketball in history, do you think were the best teams and not the fabulous five <laughs> yeah that uh, that definitely makes it interesting because you know that's the, the automatic answer would be that fabulous five team mm-hmm. uh, but uh coming to mind uh i don't know if they're the best but um you know just as far as what they accomplished certainly that that team in in uh, coach Kanat's first year they went uh set a school record for wins in 28 and 6 uh the program's only victory in the NCAA tournament over Cal, you know, number four seed. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were number three. Uh, so definitely, you know, they've got the, the stats to, to back them up. Um, so that one comes to mind. Um, I don't know if this was the best, but definitely, you know, um, the AC and Alika teams of, uh, I believe it was 97, 98. Mm-hmm. Um, those come to mind. And then one, one favorite of mine, which does not have a great record, uh, but it was that 94 team that went to the NCAA tournament after a 22-year drought uh, with Trevor Ruffin and Tony Maroney and Phil Handy and Kalia McGee, um, John Mulley Jr. Um, I really like what that team did, starting out 0-3, getting smashed all three games in the Great Alaska Shootout, and then coming back a month later, uh, going to the championship game against Louisville um, in the Rainbow Classic, and then um, you know spectacular win over BYU um, in the regular season, and then winning the the WAC tournament uh, to go play Syracuse in the NCAA tournament. Um, you know that team finished I think seventeen and fourteen was their final record, so mm-hmm. not glamorous record. But when you look at who was on that team and what they accomplished and uh, how far they went. Um, that's another one that comes to mind. Yeah, I'd put that team as the 
the overachieving team in UH basketball history because, you know, from where they were to where they ended up for sure. The other team, uh, I was I would have put for one of my teams, that 98 team with Alika and AC, I would also put, I believe it was the 02 team with Savovich and English that won 20-plus games and went to the NCAA tournament. I think that was the, the third of three consecutive WAC titles, right, under Riley Wallace, if I remember correctly. And if you played them together, so let's say for you, you picked the Alika AC team, and then the 2016 team that had a first-round victory in the NCAA tournament. If you played them together, theoretically, who do you think would win? Oh, shucks. Yeah, that one, uh, it definitely would be a great matchup. You Like you said, you have Savo, you know, was a scoring machine. But then that 16 team had Jenks, and uh, Bobbitt was a tremendous point guard. Um, so, yeah, it definitely would be exciting. Um, whew. Um, you know, when you think about Carl English and, um, man, yeah, that's a tough one. <laughs> you know, my, my tipping scale is I'm always looking at the guards. I would say I would have voted that the Alika AC team would have beat either the 02 or the 2016 team just because they had the much better guard tandem to me overall than the other two teams. And, you know, granted, you know, the bigs and the other complementary players obviously create such a huge factor. But if I can just go with the guard tandems of each respective team, I would kind of lean toward that Alika and AC team. And, you know, I'm sure some people would jump on that too. Oh, for sure. So, uh, you know, the recently uh, completed Iolani Prep Classic last month, um, the team I got to host was DeMatha, Hyattsville, Maryland. Ooh. And their head was a guy named Mike Jones, who was a guard for TCU during that era. Ooh. And I asked him, who did you have to guard, AC or Alika? He said both, I guess, you know, depending on the, uh, which year it was and, and where it was in the season. And, uh, you know, this was 25 years ago. And this is a guy that played 11 years in the, in the overseas in Europe. Uh, but he remembers very clearly all those games against um, AC and Alika, and he said, "Wow, you know that was a great um, that was a great tandem." Uh, so did Bill Self. You know, he was at Tulsa during those years mm-hmm. uh, during the Maui Invitational. He he had mentioned um, going up against those guys. So it's not just us. I, uh, a lot of opponents um, remember <laughs> that combination and how great they were. Yeah, indeed they were. And Wes Nakamba joining us from War Insider. I just wanted to get a quick take from you um, related to, you know, the the football coaching stepping downs of three great legends all within a 24-hour period and, you know, Belichick, Saban, and Carroll. And I, I led off this show by saying, you know, has has coaching, whether it be NFL or college, is it m- much more of a young coach's game? I mean, it's trending that way. But in the reality and what will look ahead into what is, especially college uh, athletics with the portal and NLI and IL, oh, those letters kill me. Do you look at it as it is trending way more toward you have to be a younger coach? Um, I don't know if well, younger as far as age, but as far as um, relating to the kids, for sure. And, and you look at, um, and you know, this, this can go either way too, but all the, the hype surrounding Deion Sanders. Um, and he's not a young guy. Um, you know, I think he's 55, 56. Mm-hmm. But certainly his persona is young and, and his, um, 
you know, the way he carries himself is young and some, somebody that the young kids can, can relate to. Uh, so I definitely think that helps. But what's interesting, you know, in the aftermath of Saban, um, listening to all the, the comments, um, I know on, on the off the bench show yesterday, we had uh, Scott Posa from a uh, former UH player who started his career at Alabama. And what he pointed out was how, um, you know, uh, Saban's connected with the players. And, and, um, and, you know, I think that that is, you know, no matter what age you are, if you're 72 or 42, I think that's number one. Um, another interesting comment after about Saban was, uh, came from Charles Barkley of all people, mm. an Auburn guy, <laughs> but he had said how, um, on the radio where, um, Saban during the George Floyd incident, right after that a few years ago, he called Charles Barkley and asked him to talk to his team. And he said, you know, uh, I'm a 68 year old white male. I, you know, I, I don't know if I'm in a position to talk to my guys, but I think you, you'd be in a much better position. And that really made an impression on Barkley and, and you know, uh, showed him how much Saban cared about his players and wanted to connect with the players by reaching out to an Auburn guy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Barkley. But he knew that that's, that's, that would be a good person for his players to hear from during this very sensitive uh, and emotional time. So, you know, things like that, I think, uh, again, um, you know, they, they talked about Pete Carroll as well as, you know, um, for a guy who's 72, and he, he has a young persona. Um, mm-hmm. he definitely, the way he, he carries himself on the sidelines, and he's, he's out there, you can tell he's enjoying himself, having fun. Um, he doesn't look like a 72-year-old guy, you know, when he's, when he's coaching. So, yep. um, yeah, I don't think it's necessarily the age is a number. I think it's more of the uh, approach and uh, your persona and how well you can relate to, to the kids. Yeah, true. And the Deion Sanders one is a perfect example. He does create a younger persona, and he's Deion. So that adds to the old glitz and glamour of who he is in the Colorado program as well. So, hey, man, thank you so much for coming on, talking some basketball and other things. We'll see you at the game tomorrow. Appreciate it. Yep. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Wes Nakama from Warrior Insider. Go to warriorinsider.com. Dot com and find out more inside information related to Hawaii men's basketball. I want to congratulate Don from Mililani, who won the pair of men's basketball tickets for the men's basketball game tomorrow against UC Riverside. Good luck to the team in that game. Let's take our final timeout, and we'll come back and wrap things up. And I'll have a different perspective on what is considered old, coming from an older guy myself. This is Let's Talk Sports. Dave Kawada filling in on ESPN Honolulu. Hey, guys, win $1,000 cash grand prize and $100 weekly prizes in ESPN Honolulu's Pigskin Picks. Brought to you by M. Dyer Global and Young's Fish Market. Visit ESPNHonolulu.com right now to register. And don't forget to upgrade your island style with Kahala, the original Aloha shirt since 1936. Pick one up for yourself at one of Kahala's six stores island-wide or at kahala.com. And you can catch NFL football at 850 Craft Beer and Whiskey Bar at Leeward Bowl. They're open at 6 a.m. Sunday, showing all the NFL games. For Monday and Thursday night football, enjoy happy hour poo-poos from 4 to 7 p.m. daily. For Hawaii football games, they're 
have awesome menu specials. 850 is the home of the new video wall and the place for UH, college, and NFL football. You know, sports is a great kind of, I don't know if the word, but, you know, age is something that's really mentioned a lot in athletics because of the fact that in sports, it's a younger person's activity. It's a younger person's profession. So a person's age determines, you know, how long they can be be doing it, how long they can sustain a level of success, be relevant. Um, Usually, of course, it's going through players, but as we've kind of brought up today, and it seems like the trend is there's a lot of that age element as it relates to coaches. Like, is this becoming more of a coach's game? And as Wes Nakama brought up, you know, it's not so much your age, but how you are perceived, how you are looked at, how you're able to engage with as you get, as that age delta gets bigger and bigger because you're getting older, but your team, their age uh, average stays the same, right? College, the ages are the same. In the professional sports, your age average roughly stays the same in the 20s. Or in baseball, it's the early th- you know, early 30s. If you're, you know, 40s, that's fine. But you're, if you stay in it long enough, next thing you know, you're 50s, 60s, and so on. So your gap gets bigger. But how well you can still connect whatever your skill is and whatever your process is to connect with that similar age group, but also be aware of how that age demographic receives information, how they learn, how they accept, how they are able to be coached. And we hear that a lot of times. you got to be able to adapt to how things are now, adapt to what your audience is. And as the Wes gave the um, Nick Saban example of with George Floyd as a social issue, he's an older white male, but this is a very um, African-American issue. And he asked Charles, Bar- Charles Barkley to talk to his team, which is a lot of African-Americans on it. So he recognized that what would be the best means of communicating this information to his players that are between the ages of 18 and 22. And if you can recognize that, then you can still stay relevant as long as you're willing to pivot. Like, And you, you know, you look at some people, like Deion Sanders is perfect. He looks, you forget how old he is sometimes, right? Part of the way he talks, the way he dresses, you know, you forget that he's mid-50s. You look at Bill Belichick, he's old, you know, he is old. Um, I, I think of Brett Farr. Brett Farr, toward the end of his career, he carried himself not as a player in his late 30s or 40 trying to still play NFL football. I mean, his output his performance showed his age in some respects but the way he carried himself and the way he was able to from what I saw interact with the players he has that oh shuck southern boy you know personality about him and aside from the fact that he let his hair grow gray and his beard was gray he carried himself in a much more I think relatable way to his teammates where you know they could still connect with him and you know the team chemistry and in the locker room that kind of thing um, Tom Brady played until he was archaic in football age, 41, 42, but he looked good. He was in great shape. He looked, you know, he was a pretty boy, but 
he didn't look old, and he definitely didn't play old, right? So he he kept himself in great shape. Now his personality was very, you know, professional and mature, and how that resonated. But at the very least, for the younger players who are in their mid twenties, it's a role model. This is the you know this is the standard of the profession being a professional athlete. This is the uh, what uh, your starting your legendary quarterback should be like. It, he kind of gave you that persona, right? You may not be able to you know, swig a couple of beers and talk about girls with him, but he gave you something that you could connect with as a teammate, as a teammate in the locker room. Then I look at conversely, like um, Aaron Rodgers. He's old. He is old, right, at 40. He's aloof. He, you know, he's gray. He has a older mentality about he's quirky he you know he thinks differently like totally different from that african-american 25 year old second or third year in the league kind of way you know so i can't imagine players being able to connect with him he's going to be older now we're looking at the trends of coaches older than some of the coaches on the coaching staff and again, it's that's a good point. How you carry yourself, and not to say you're going to be immature, but you carry yourself to be a little bit younger in the eyes of those around you. Like you don't look your age. You don't act like you, you don't act old. You can be 70, but not Pete Carroll is not old. If that kind of makes any sense. Yeah, so I I think the fact that Pete Carroll is says he wanted to coach, and you can look at him and say he's willing to coach. He has the energy to coach. You know, people want to pick him up. Bill looks old. Bill Belichick looks old, acts old, is old, stuck in his ways. If you're going to bring him on, he's legendary, but it's going to be his way or the highway, and you're not going to sway him off that stick. It's That's the way it is. That's kind of how I see it. Well. We'll see how it goes with these legendary guys. Nick Saban, how long will he be retired? Who knows? Hey, I want to thank my guest, Dallas Correa, the new catching coordinator for the Milwaukee Brewers, Wes Nakama from Warrior Insiders. Don, congratulations. See you at the game tomorrow for men's basketball. Have a terrific weekend, everybody. And Cano will be back next week. Enjoy the long weekend as well. We'll see you next week. Have a great weekend. Thank you. This is Let's Talk Sports on ESPN Honolulu.